Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, as I mentioned, uh, this morning we are moving into our fall ministry or fall season message series. Uh, It's going to be largely through the first two chapters of Ephesians uh, here during the months leading up to Christmas. And as we do that, as we look at our world and at our culture, there's pretty significant seismic shifts happening in our world. In just the very last few weeks of August, a pretty significant book came out that was entitled The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? It deals with a number of topics, but often in church world, there's several terms that are often used. We often sometimes talk about the unchurched as well as the dechurched. The unchurched are those who maybe have never really gone to church. Church is generally on the peripheral. They're not involved, never have been, maybe don't even really care to be. But one of the growing aspects that we see in our modern culture is not necessarily the growth of the unchurched, but the growth of the dechurched. The dechurched are those who once upon a time regularly participated in some kind of religious services, but have chosen not to do so any longer. Maybe not even in hostility, but simply they don't go anymore. They're dechurched. The context of the book is that as a nation, we're currently experiencing the largest fastest religious shift in the history of the United States. We really are. It's pretty significant. We are literally experiencing both the largest and fastest religious transition in the United States. Mentioned a while back that for the first time in eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership more adults in the United States don't attend church than actually attend church. Now, often when pastors or other people bring this up, it's almost with a sense of pessimism. It's with a sense of some kind of impending doom. It feels kind of gloomy. And a lot of times churches can lay this out and sort of you get the feeling that the sky is falling and it's often used almost manipulatively. To say to congregations, you got to go to church, you better be here, you got to come back here. And probably some of us in this room maybe have even experienced that. I don't know, for some reason when I look at the data, yes, it concerns me. But just to be fully honest and fully transparent, I just have this sense that God's spirit is at work in our country and at work in people's lives also in unprecedented ways. I really do. I feel like there's a higher level of thirst. I feel like there's a higher level of dissatisfaction 
with that which is untrue, not authentic, not genuine. I feel like there's a hunger and thirst for the real deal. There's a hunger and thirst for who God is to be more concrete in our lives, more gripping, that we would actually see more life transformation than just more information and knowledge. Again, statistic-wise, it's fairly significant. In American history, there was a first great awakening. It was pretty massive. There was a second great awakening in 1790 to 1840. Again, pretty massive. The four decades following the Civil War were also some of the largest numbers of people became engaged with Christianity. Sometimes God uses difficult things to actually accomplish his purposes. And so again, rather than being doom and gloom, I believe God is at work, that his Holy Spirit is active. But I also believe that churches and followers of Christ need to dive in more deeply to the truth of who God is and be more deeply rooted and grounded in his word. Some people would say by looking at the data, that belief in God, belief in what scripture teaches has obviously become obsolete. And so we probably should change our tune, change our messaging to kind of adapt a little bit more readily to the cultural environment in which we live. But I don't know, friends, I don't think it's the message that needs to change. In fact, I would say, rather than sort of moving on from Scripture, rather than simply moving on from the truth of who God is, we actually need to move more deeply into it. Many would say the truth of Scripture has obviously become obsolete. It's regressive. It's traditionalistic. It's antiquated. It's archaic. And so the best thing you can do to kind of revitalize religious interest is to kind of tame it down a little bit. But I actually think it's just the opposite. That maybe God wants to dive us in more deeply. Maybe we need to more seriously grapple with things that have been easy for us to simply take for granted in a culture that's been generally friendly with Christianity and its values. Maybe it's been easy for us to be sort of cultural Christians rather than seriously wrestle with the truth of who God is and how his truth corresponds and relates and wrestles with our lives. And so we actually need to move more deeply into Scripture rather than moving from Scripture. One other thing that we often say is this. Well, it's important to read the Bible, and we certainly do that here on a Sunday morning. We encourage you to do that during the week. Reading Scripture is important. But in addition to reading through the Bible, we also say it's important to let God's Word read through you. Sometimes it's easy just to sit down and read the Bible. But the other question is this. Is the Bible accurately and aggressively reading your life? Are you simply reading the Bible or is the truth of who God is? Is that reading you? Is it dissecting you? Is it kind of taking you apart? Sometimes we become adept at taking apart the truth of Scripture 
But there's a aggressively deal with the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of our core beliefs as followers of Jesus, some of our core beliefs as a church, but not just look at them informationally, but look at them through the lens of how do those core beliefs impact the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Number one, right out of the chute, Paul obviously is not interested in saying, hey, I'm going to spell out to you some tenets about Christianity that you're simply to believe in informationally. Yes, there's information that's true. Yes, there's information that we regard to be fully true. But Paul is saying, never divorce that truth from the reality of the presence of Jesus. It's only the truth of the person of Christ that breathes life into that truth. Kind of pseudo problems that our culture has with Christianity. Three cultural rubs, you might say, that our culture or surrounding our modern world has with Christianity. Number one, you can read those verses, and right away, if you're living in our modern culture, you have an authority problem with what Paul just said. Notice the first phrase of Christ. Friends, that's pretty heavy language. And right away, that rubs up against an authority problem that we often have especially as Westerners in our modern era. One of our prized values as modern people is personal autonomy, personal freedom. I establish for myself that which is true. Anything that sniffs or breathes of authority is something that's limiting, constraining, And yet Paul starts out saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Listen, friends, let me just ask a question. Probably all of us can name some kind of authority, maybe that we were under. Maybe it was in a family situation. Maybe it was in a business situation. Maybe it was even in a church situation. We know what toxic authority looks like. We know that authority can be abusive. We know that authority can be self-serving. In our modern era, we have a huge antenna out for abusive authority. And so right away, when we approach Scripture, we kind of bring that lens to the text. And it's almost difficult for us to actually absorb what it looks like to respond to the authority of God, the authority of Christ. We're so embedded 
and sort of toxic perspective authority that we immediately become resistant to anything that rings of authority. And yet, listen, friends, the authority of Jesus is the authority that sets us free. The authority of Jesus, the authority of his grace, the authority of his love, the authority of who he is, is exactly the thing that we need that sets us free. Question, how much has our abandonment of authority in our modern world set us free to have meaningful, purposeful, joyful lives. Not so much, right? In fact, I would say, you can look at this culturally, the more that we've sort of thrown any kind of authority off, almost the more in bondage we've become to the vices of our beings, to the appetites of ourselves, rather than throwing off of authority, leading us into some sort of grand place of freedom, it's actually led us off into bondage. And here's why the authority of Jesus is ultimately an authority that you can trust in. It's because the authority of Jesus came with him laying down his life. God certainly ordains human levels of authority. But wherever you find authority, there can always be abuse. There can always be authoritarianism rather than appropriate authority. But only when it comes to Jesus does he have absolutely full authority. But his full authority also comes with the fullness of grace. He lays his life down. He's the only one who can come who can claim absolute authority, but he's also the one who lays his life down and gives himself to those who have rebelled against him, namely we as human beings, so that we could become right with him. He has authority, but he uses his authority to heal. Listen, friends, To deal with your human condition, Jesus must have authority. Jesus is not your therapist. Jesus is not your spiritual advisor. Jesus is not your life coach. Jesus is not your consultant. Jesus is not abusive. So that's kind of cultural problem number one. Cultural problem number two, we'll go through these pretty quickly, is there's an identity problem. Look at Ephesians 1, 1 again, the phrase that follows. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. He says, to God's holy people. Oh, like, that doesn't rub us the right way either. As soon as we say, think God's holy people, by the way, the word there is actually saints, could say to God's saints in Ephesus, we kind of automatically think of some class of people who kind of set themselves apart and distinguish themselves as morally and religiously superior to everybody else. That they kind of stand on the top step of the moral superiority ladder and look down their nose 
to everyone who falls short of attaining their particular stature of goodness of behavior. That's what often comes to our cultural minds when we think of God's holy people. Just before I dive into that further, let me say this as well. I would say you actually see a version of holiness in our day in a couple of different ways. See, the word holy means separate from, different than, set apart. So in our modern culture, we have the religiously holy. They're often conservative socially, conservative politically, conservative religiously. They're the They're the the holy rollers, the moralistic people. That's the holy people who are on the right. But make no mistake about it, friends, and I think you can kind of get this. Is it not true there's also a secular holiness these days as well? There's also a progressive holiness. Here's the sexual agenda that you need. Here's the perspective on religion that you need to have. Here's the political philosophy that you need to adhere to. So there's kind of a a secular man-made holiness. If you're going to be set apart in this group and have all the right opinions, all the right perspectives, if you're going to be socially progressive and open-minded and advanced and sophisticated in your perspective, then you're going to belong to this set-apart holy group of people who set apart from those people who are regressive. And so you have kind of the regressive holy people, the moralistic holy people. Over here, the progressive holy people, the advanced holy people. When God says we're holy people, he says, your standing has nothing to do with it. You are set apart, not by your positions, but by my grace. Jesus kicks down all ladders. He kicks down all the ways that we try to set apart and establish our tribalism. He kicks all of that down. And he says, no, 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 no. You're my people. Not because you belong in that circle. Not because you belong in this circle. But because you belong to me through the grace of Jesus Christ, my son. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 8 and 9, some of the core verses in Ephesians. Here's what Paul says. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Listen, friends. You're set apart to God. Not because you belong to the religious right or not because you have moral superiority or not because you have traditionalistic moral values. You don't, belong to, you don't belong to God's holy people because you have a progressive perspective, or you're socially advanced, or intellectually enlightened. You belong to God's people because of Jesus Christ. And so Paul knocks down every ladder This is the only way that you're set apart. The only way that you belong is to the person of Jesus. Not does belonging to him have, bring about perspectives of different positions? Absolutely. God's truth touches all areas of life. 
But that's not what makes you holy. What makes you holy is the person of Jesus. It was interesting, I mentioned, I wanted to say this earlier, but I saw a post on Twitter, now it's called X now, but I don't know, I can't get into that. Um, uh, there's a post on Twitter, here's what a guy said. See if you can hear sort of the tribalism and the secular form of holiness in this comment. He said, I find it horrendously immoral, pretty spiritualized language. I find it horrendously immoral anytime a religious person tries using their religion to justify telling you how to live your life. Then he simply says, stay in your own lane. You hear the form of secular holiness there? Here's a person who's secularly holy. He says, those people over there, stay in your lane. Well, these people over here would say to him, like, stay in your lane, dude. Like, who are you to critique me about my morals and my religion? You're, you're critiquing me the same way you don't want me to critique. There's, there's compartmentalized, secular, holy, and religious holy. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not about that. I'm about making people my sons and daughters through the person of Christ. It's him that makes us new. We belong to him through the work of Jesus. So there's an authority, there's a cultural authority problem, there's a cultural identity problem. Lastly, just really quickly, there's a cultural privacy problem as well. Notice Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing this letter to followers of Jesus in Ephesus. They're going to gather together. They're going to read this letter together. As they gather together, they're going to sharpen one another. They're going to speak truth into one another's lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, he encouraged them to serve one another. In Ephesians 5 and 6, he talks about family dynamics, employer dynamics, relationship. Paul is writing this letter, and he's saying, yes, your faith is personal. Listen to this. Your faith is personal. Your walk with God is personal. But listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this. Your walk with God is personal, but it's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It's not just you and Jesus. It's not just you kind of getting what you personally need to out of the person of Jesus for yourself. No, it's personal, but it's not private. These folks to those reading this letter, gathered at Ephesus, sharpening one another, serving one another, loving one another. They would go out into their jobs, and wherever they would go, they would bring the presence of Christ to their jobs, the presence of Christ to their corporate offices, the presence of Christ to the field of education, the presence of Christ to the area of medicine, the presence of Christ to the area of entertainment. They would bring the presence of Christ wherever they would go. And they would interact with each other being in Christ. And so Paul is making clear, these are the people in Ephesus. As we move into the fall ministry season, we have stations up here and surrounding of, of groups that we have. 
free to connect, to walk with others, to be sharpened, to be strengthened. And here's, friends, here's one thing I can guarantee you. There's probably going to be people that you walk into that drive you crazy. Like they don't think like you do. They don't have personality. They drive you crazy. It's actually part of God's sharpening experience in our lives. We sharpen one another. We serve one another. We love, and it's actually, it's actually when there's a rub in those relationships that can actually be the platform from which we actually embrace Jesus even more, which we grow even more. So man, may your faith be deeply personal, but don't fall into the cultural problem of your faith being private, because it's not. It's not just you and Jesus. It's you and other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's you and living Jesus out wherever he takes you this week. It's you living out Jesus in a grocery store, in a laundry room, in a laundromat, in the aisles of a shopping center, in the corporate office. It's Christ living through you for others to experience him through you. I want to ask our team to come up. And we're going to close this morning by singing the doxology. In one sense, we're a little bit early on this because from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to 14, Paul just explodes in praise to God. And so we're going to sing the song uh, just in praise to God. Doxology literally means praise to God. And uh, we're going to sing it in English as well as Spanish. We sometimes do this. And the reason we do it is simply to remind ourselves, you know, God is English speaking. We happen to be the believers gathered at Southridge in Clinton. Some of you bring to us the Spanish language. Some of you bring Japanese, Chinese. Some of you bring Arabic. And if you want to give us the version of the doxology in your language, you know, we'd maybe love to do that. But at least we're going to do Spanish. That's a little bit more accessible to many of us. And just acknowledge, man, the praise of God happens not just in English, but happens everywhere in our world, crosses tribes, nations, and language, and it's a beautiful thing. So let's stand, let's sing this song in praise to this amazing God, and let's give ourselves to his authority.
do praise you God thank you that your authority is good thank you that you're not abusive in your authority but you're sacrificial thank you that you give us identity not because of our own tribal identities but the identity that comes through the gift of your son Jesus thank you that our faith is not private but that you use others to strengthen us. And as we interact with others, we become more of the people that you designed us to be. Praise be to you. May we be in Christ this week. May his presence go with us everywhere we go. We ask that in your name and everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. Hey, I would encourage you to visit the group tables around the auditorium and up front. Would love for you to do that. God bless. Enjoy some donuts. Have a wonderful day.